0: Up next, on episode 37 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the expansion of Stack Overflow into non-programming IT topics, the pernicious problem of systemitis, and how to reach the next generation of programmers, from IT
1: Conversations.
0: Hi, this is Phil Windley. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. It's your Skype buddy.
2: Yes, we're Skype buddies. That's awesome. Um, oh, somebody on Twitter told me to say hello to you.
1: Oh, hello so, Twitter. Um,
2: he- hello. <laughs> I just do what people on Twitter you know, tell me to do, really.
1: Um, I, I posted a question on Twitter asking the people what I should get because I dropped my DVD player on the ground yesterday and it wait,
2: stopped wait, wait. working. You have a DVD player? You know, it's
1: yeah. What
2: do you have like an 8 track tape player and like a <laughs> VHS Well, it's from the past. Do you have a real do you have a real to real tape machine by any chance? Do you have any machines that <laughs> have all those flashing lights on the front that they see in the movies?
1: <laughs> you or, think I'm old. I'm just kidding. Just just giving you a hard time. Um I had an idea for a stack. One of my, my stack overflow club question this week is going to be all about computing in the 1980s. So we can talk about being old later. later. That's foreshadowing.
2: Okay. Well, that's good. Well, we had a, I, I don't know if you saw, but Alan Kay was on. We think it's the real Alan Kay too, not, you know, a fake doppelganger. Mm-hmm. And he actually, he answered, I think at first he was doing like an ego surf, which is fine because I think everybody does that. You just have a, a search term set up for your name and it alerts you. Which I'm sure if you're Alan Kay,
1: must have, like, lots of results every day. (laughs) He's checking every day to see if anybody invents something called a Dynabook.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, this guy won the Turing Award. I mean, he's, like, a legend, like, really a legend. So, anyway, it's nice that I feel like he's engaging with the community. I think that's awesome uh, out there doing stuff. So, I encourage it. So, he had posted an answer to somebody who had asked a question about his quote, some quote that he had made. So, he answered and was like, wow, that's really cool. And I blogged about it. And then later, um, he actually posted a question. Yeah, he posted a question on Stack Overflow, which was awesome. Which is about significant computing innovations since like 1980. Like, what would be a significant? Innovation? Yeah, that was.
1: Uh, oh, that was the question that I. Uh, that's going to be my favorite question. Oh, I'm sorry. Should we talk about it now? I mean, I've been we've been foreshadowing the yeah. heck, heck out of this thing. That was sure. posted by Alan Kay, really. Oh yeah, totally. it's community wiki. How do you know? Well, that's that's another thing I'm working on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> which. Uh, <laughs> we can talk about that, too, but l- let's come back to that. But it, it is Alan Kay. If you click through the revision oh, history, the his first revision was posted by Alan Kay.
1: And like I said, we believe it's the real Alan Kay, which is awesome. I mean, that's cool. Scientists have reason to believe that this is not an impersonator. Because who would want to impersonate Alan Kay? You know, if you're going to be impersonating somebody, at least impersonate, like, Jay-Z. Or, you know, if it's <laughs> going to be the computing, the computing world, maybe Steve Ballmer or, or Steve Jobs. or But not Alan Kay. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I I don't know. The pathologies of people who impersonate other people I, are very unclear to me. <laughs> that's but I'm it's like. obviously some sort of attention mechanism. It's like, oh, I am Admiral Grace Hopper. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's correct. That could happen. Yeah.
1: So, did you want to talk about the question? What what's you liked about it? Week? Well, well, we're going to come back to that because that's like we'll, ah, you know this podcast. Sorry, is so Sorry, I
2: know we have a certain order we do things, and I don't want to
1: you know violate you the order. order. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I
2: have really something. I have something else I, I can talk about, which is first uh, in the order. And and you mocked me for this, and I would like to point out that you were wrong. <laughs> that we did well, actually see. reverse engineer the WMD, the JavaScript control that we used. For oh yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, through the Herculean efforts of a number of people, but primarily one. Uh, Dana Robinson. Thanks, Dana. Um, yeah, uh, he's a graduate chemistry student at the University of Illinois, Champaign. I think. But uh, that's where amazing amount uh, uh, of effort okay. Okay. put into it. I mean, I, I I'm just stunned by the amount of progress he made. And the, the cool thing is, we deployed it, and it also had the sort of the top three bug fixes that have been like bug fixes pending for months because mm-hmm. we didn't really have editable source code yeah. for this. JavaScript, all we have was obfuscated version. Well, was it really, um, and there like hasn't intentionally, been, was it
1: obfuscated or just minimized?
2: Well, the, they're kind of, the, no
1: difference? kind of the same thing. Well, I know that JavaScript. minimizing obfuscates, but, I mean, there's ways to obfuscate that are go much beyond minimizing.
2: I guess that's true. I guess you're right. It's not really fair to call it obfuscated. It's just typically minimized. But minimize is pretty bad because you have no variable names. <laughs> right. It's, <laughs> it's still pretty painful, right? I mean, different amounts like, of
1: white space.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I guess it's unfair to call it obfuscated. It's truly just minimized. But uh, we ha- we have a version that's actually editable now. It's in uh, on GitHub. I'll link it in the podcast notes, so anyone who's interested
1: can actually pull it down. And they can send um, you patches, and you'll um, change. Or I'm sorry, change sets. They'll send you change sets, and you can uh, accept exactly. Them. Right. This is the whole that distributed
2: source control thing we talked about with Eric mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. last week. Which I agree, like you, I'm still sort of getting my head around it. But the cool thing is. I, I guess one way to look at it is if if you have one contributor that's really outpacing everybody else and just contributing just massive amounts to the project, mm-hmm. that sort of becomes the de facto branch that you're going to follow. <laughs> <laughs> well, Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. this guy is so far out ahead, you're like, well, these branches don't even matter anymore. I'm just going to pick up Dana's branch because you know he's you know and and nobody really limits him. He just works at his own pace.
1: You I know, read he's checking. Um, in. Yeah, um, after you you linked to uh, that um, uh, that that long history of open source source uh, version control systems by uh, Eric Raymond. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I read that all. I thought it was, you know, pretty good. If, if a little bit obsessive compulsive, I thought that having a a summary of the major command line options of every version control system was a little bit over the top while discussing the history. Um, but that was cool. And I read it except for the summary of the major command line options, uh, in each version control system historically. And, uh, um, you know, I think the, the thing what I learned most about it is when you think of di- di- distributed version control systems, you have to stop thinking of it, of, of it as being a bunch of different versions of your source code, like version 1, version 2, version 3. That's probably how you're thinking of it. You have to start thinking of it as a bunch of floating change sets. Each of these change sets can be applied or not applied. You know what I mean? Like, it's all about thinking not about, I got version 1, I got version 2, I got version 3, but about thinking, hmm. I have the diff that would take you from the version that doesn't have spell-checking to the version that does have spell-checking. It's sort of like thinking of, you know, like looking at a page and thinking about the white between the letters instead of the letters themselves. And once you start thinking that way, uh, everything becomes easier to understand suddenly in the distributed version control.
2: I think that's an excellent point, and I think that's a good way to think of it. But one concern I have is that merging doesn't... I mean, there's still ways I could edit the code that would make your merge... Impossible <laughs> practically to merge with, with my stuff. Sure. Now, the, 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 the canonical pathology there is say I went in and reformatted all the code with a different style. Now, this is a very bad thing to do, people. Like, don't do this, but <laughs> right. say you did. Say you're very anal about formatting. Yeah, yeah. So you, all you've done is reformatted the code. Yeah, so you've got this so horrible ever,
1: change set that nobody's ever going to want to apply.
2: Well, exactly, because you've created, like, an unmergeable
1: set, yeah. essentially. Yeah. I mean, there's
2: no diff tool in the world that I've seen that so can deal
1: Linus, with. So Linus uh, rejects your change set, and you're done. <laughs> That's, you yeah. really have to think about, it. like, this, this model kind of sprung up out of the idea that there already is code, and it's a very, very large blob of code. And there's somebody who's sitting there in their, in their office, and their job is to, you know, accept or reject all these incoming supplicants who have come with possible changes. And uh, the change set itself is the, uh, the, the the minimum unit. And when you think about a very, very large body of code and a bunch of distributed people making small patches to it, it's very unlikely that there's going to be uh, major conflicts.
2: Right. You're, you're not, if you're going to be the guy that goes in and reformats all the code, which would be the worst possible scenario for this merge, Right. you're right. Your, your code will just never be accepted. So I guess it puts the burden on the person writing the code to create a change set that is easy to accept,
1: yeah, or they can do right? the merge themselves, and there's all kinds of tools and stuff like that, and there's these tools that I don't even understand. There's a thing called rebasing, which sounds like something drug addicts do, and um, indeed, I think that's really what it, what it is right where you're well, like I, should... I got this I got this chain set, and I want to magically change it, so instead of being a chain set from what it's a chain set of, it instead becomes a chain set off of somebody else, some other version.
2: oh wow. Well, I remember in Linus's talk, I know, I know Eric was not fond of that talk, but one thing I did get out of that, there were a few key things I got out of that, and one was that you can sort of put the burden, kind of like what I've seen with Dana's work, is the person who's most interested can kind of own it, mm-hmm. and like they're responsible for doing the merge. It's like, okay, just you do the work, and then, you know. <laughs> so I, I think there's a neat dynamic that comes out of that that maybe
1: reflects sort of the open source. When you're doing you know, distributed, why do you need better. the thing? Why do they even have like GitHub? Like, what's the point of that if it's distributed? What, what uh, Isn't it supposed to be distributed? Why do you need it? A...
2: Well, it's the same. Isn't it the same thing as, like, torrents? I mean, you still have to have a centralized tracker. Otherwise, how the heck would people find each other? Okay. You know? I guess so, so, even though it's distributed, I mean, like, torrents are distributed, but if you took out the trackers, right. <laughs> that would still be pretty crippling <laughs> because nobody would be able to find each other anymore. Right. They would know, just, just have to stay same. home
1: and rebase all the time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> 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 and I think that's legal in, like, 36. So, yeah. you got to be really careful
1: here. <laughs> Uh, that you're rebasing, yet categorized it as an illegal activity. Uh, we got a, a snarky email from somebody, which I won't name. I won't mention, saying that we're too conversational, and that we should stick more to the topic and be less like radio DJs.
2: I, th- I think it's a done deal at this point. I mean, if, you, if you're listening to the podcast, you like it, and if you don't, you don't. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to react to broad criticism like that. Yeah,
1: I'm just uh, going based on this. If we still have six listeners, then we're doing better than we were when we started and we had four
2: listeners. Well, it's your dad, Joel. Your dad your dad still listens, right? Yeah. Okay, you pay him to listen, but still, he's listening. You know, as long as you keep
1: those checks coming, he'll... Right. Well, you know, if he good. wants, you know, I, at some point, he's going to rely on me to feed him and...
2: so <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is the end game. Oh, the you know, we're way. having we're having a a, a baby here, and I, I never really thought of it that way. But thank you for reminding me that oh, <laughs> eventually, yeah. Yeah. your kids have to take care of you. Mm-hmm. So you got to be a little nice to them, so they don't totally hate you. Right. So a, another topic. Um, I I do have most of the server hardware coming together for Stack Overflow. Yeah. And yeah, I don't want to talk too much about the details, but we have sort of tentatively picked a data mm-hmm. center uh, for this stuff to go in. Mm-hmm. Um. And the exciting thing, well, fun one, it's just fun to mess with the server hardware. I know we've talked about it quite a bit in a few previous podcasts, so I don't want to get too much into it. But it's really fun for me to, like, build the RAID arrays and, like, see how they work and, like, eject drives and just sort of get a feel for how that all works. And some of the lessons you brought up earlier, like, if you insert a drive that the array thinks is another drive, that's really bad. <laughs> right.
1: You have to – it's, it's probably worth, like, having, like, a written procedure of, like, when a drive fails, here's what we're going to do. Yeah. Or you know, if a right, just so you sort of know the steps to follow, and you know that they're tested, because you can really, I mean, if if it were possible to cause like one of those time warps where the entire universe implodes and we're just all gone, it would be a rate array that would be involved in that. I think you know, like <laughs> if there was a way using server standard server hardware to destroy the universe as we know it, or create a black hole, you know, in Poughkeepsie, New York, that swallows up everything. Um, it would have something to do with the RAID controllers.
2: Totally. And the other thing I'm finding is uh, the amount of time it takes to rebuild the array is pretty, pretty long. Uh, so, so the bigger server, the 2U server that we has, does dynamic, like on the fly rebuilding, uh, no problem. But it takes many, many hours. I think even for the 500 gig drive, I just ejected it, which worked. And then I put it back in, and then you know the light flashes indicate that it's resyncing in the background while the server's running, which obviously has some impact. On performance,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, it took at least—I want to say—eight hours. It Took a long time. Wow. So, yeah. you yeah. know, that's something you got to think about as well. like how long, how, how long does it take to read
1: an entire like terabyte drive? Well, these are only five hundred gig drives. These are half gig. terabyte drives, yeah, but okay. it takes how a while it take to read. A like on like the, like, like the resyncing, it's just a read-write. and It's not doing anything remarkably inefficiently. It's just like if you've ever tried to copy an entire half gig drive, it just takes a, a, right. a long, long time. It
2: it really does. It truly does. And that's what you sort of forget. Because on the 1U server, I don't think I can do like a hot rebuild because that's just a mirror. So ejecting worked fine. Like I was able to eject. The server didn't even hiccup or anything. Uh, but when I reinserted the drive, it blue screened, <laughs> which is obviously not one of the goals. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to sort of go into the BIOS and do uh, a resync of the two drives. And that, where the computer's totally doing nothing but copy data from one drive to the other. Oh the server is down to this, this is happening. That's right. That uh, was what for, kind of is this? for hours. Yeah, well these are the the one use are very inexpensive, and I think they have just a really entry level RAID sort of configuration. And you're gonna, you're gonna have two
1: of those. You're gonna have two front end one use, right?
2: I am. One of the pieces of advice I got uh, in the initial post I made on this was, you know, think about redundancy and think about things failing because you know you're not gonna be there, right? <laughs> yeah, what we did <laughs> so, uh,
1: yeah, what we've done. Almost, uh, you know, for years worked very well for File Creek is two Windows servers running the network load balancer and they just sort of talk amongst themselves and decide which one is going to pick up which requests. Uh, so you don't need an external hardware load balancer and you just got then two web servers running at the same time. And The nice thing about that is if one of them dies you just go into network load balancer and said this one has died. It doesn't detect it unfortunately because it's a cheesy low-level uh, tool but it does at least uh, allow you to keep things running uh, and it, and more commonly it's it 's actually kind of rare for one of them to die What 's more common is like every Tuesday you get some patches from Microsoft and you want to apply them, but you don 't want to bring the site down so uh, you just bring you just tell the network load balancer to drain stop one of them, and then all the new requests go to the other server and you wait for about a minute while the server the server that you 're drain stopping finishes its pending requests and that can actually take as long as an hour because you 've got to keep alive and so you may have people still still sucking down stuff off of you and then um and then you bring that server down, you know, patch it, bring it back up and then do the opposite. And uh I did that, you know, myself single-handedly for um for the first few years of of various Fog Creek websites and Dawn software and it saved us a lot of out- downtime.
2: Right. Yeah, that's something we have to look at adding to our rack is some kind of load balancer or at the very well, least here, like a network. What I'm saying.
1: Yeah, the network load balancer is is a software only solution. Doesn't need an, it doesn't need an additional device. It's just software that runs on the Windows server.
2: Oh, really? Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah, that, that would be great. I'll have to look into what you're using. I know, remember when we talked to the Reddit guys? They had some solution. I can't remember the name. and i have to look up the, the notes in the podcast. But it was some Unix-based solution that essentially did this in software. Yeah, what yeah you talking.
1: can do these, but you need then you need a box. And that's fine. And, and once you want to have your fourth box to do the load balancing, uh, mm-hmm. that's cool. But the, the nice thing about Windows is it comes out of the box with this thing built in called Network Load Balancer. And it's pretty easy to use. And I've run it. You can set it up on via using VMware. You can set up a few machines and just see it working uh, before you try oh. it on the hardware. And um, basically what happens is you give them each uh, two IP addresses, one which they share and one which they don't share. So you have a dedicated IP address and a shared IP address. And the one that you publish on DNS is the shared IP address. And they, they use a back channel, like a secret back channel, to talk amongst themselves to decide who's going to take which requests. They're so like, okay, you handle right. this one. And uh, it's uh, it's the 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 like I say the the one thing that it can't do is detect if one of them is down. Well, it knows if one of them dies. If like one of the machines just goes off, then the other machine will take the whole load and it'll work perfectly. The trouble is if one of the machine is still alive, but it's not really serving web requests. Cause I don't know, it's like IAS got jammed in some grotesque way, which really right. doesn't happen for all intents and purposes. It's, I've never seen that happen. But if it did happen. Um, the other one wouldn't know that the machine was dead it would think it was still alive so some right. of the dedicated uh, network load balancers will you know basically ping the servers and if they see that those http requests are not coming back they'll take that server out of the pool and use the other servers um nlb network load balancer recommended free comes with the windows server
2: cool easy to yeah use. i'm going to start I'm gonna definitely start researching that um, i've really okay. kind of fallen in love with these servers like i, I know i criticized the uh, lenovo for the whole They're drive rail louder. thing, yeah, yeah, and I'm still a little bitter about that, but I've learned that's just business as usual. usual for yeah, that's how they do it. So it's like it's complaining true. that when you buy a console, it doesn't come with them like a memory card. You know, it's that's it's just their business model. But now that I've secured uh, drive bays that work on eBay um, for like 25 bucks a pop, I'm a little more
1: cool. uh, optimistic. And, now, uh, are they uh... <laughs> when you said you plugged in one of the drives in it, blue screen? That may be well, because of a bad drive, a drive caddy. Because right? no, the goal of the drive so. caddy is to cause, <laughs> is is to ensure that the electrical connections are made like simultaneously in some way. Or...
2: No, I don't think that's the case. I think this is just a low end RAID solution. It doesn't? It's like only a cold or warm swap. It's not really hot swap. Um, it's hard to tell because IBM's site, like the documentation, is not great in my right. opinion. They- um, but uh, the, the failure ability. case, which is going to be much more common, is definitely handled. Um, ejecting the drive uh, on a, on the two-drive mirror was no problem at all. So I'm encouraged by that.
1: Cool. Um, yeah, what else is happening? Well, the
2: reason that's important, I, I want to actually talk about this on the show, is once we get these new servers out to the data center, we'll have a lot more capacity for the site, which means we can grow. Mm-hmm. And one of the things uh, we want to do that I view as kind of like a no-brainer, a really obvious evolution of the Stack Overflow model is to have an IT centric Stack Overflow because yeah, and honestly like I, w- I want this for myself because a lot of, a lot of the yeah. questions I'm coming up for these servers, like yeah. I need a place to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> to ask these questions about the server. Yeah. These aren't really programming questions, like at all. No.
1: But they are <laughs> like, but you know what there's there's sort of it's a gradient from from programming to IT to just, you know, keeping the system running to you know, mom can't get a new printer to work.
2: Right. Yeah, so maybe that's our first challenge is, is defining, okay, we want to have a new IT centric Stack Overflow site. So I guess well, even before that, maybe question number zero is what do we do with the name? Is it gonna be Stack Overflow IT? Is it gonna be another name that's more, you know, IT
1: friendly than Stack Overflow? Hey, let's um, have a contest for it to come up with a name for that just the same well yeah, let's just do that again. I think it should be more maybe uh, IT centric. That was my be, gut. Uh, coffee too. overflow, for example. Yeah. Something that happens in the, over there in the IT and the help desk uh, floor they have uh, they do not have stack overflow so much.
2: Maybe you're right. Maybe that would be a good, good way to introduce people to the the idea. is to, to announce it and say hey and also it's kind of a contest where right. we're trying to come up with a name for the site cuz uh, people really like the stack overflow name. You know, that was something we we brainstormed for a long naming is really really hard. Well, we,
1: who it, uh, who originally oh, man, suggested far. it?
2: Cuz there was a I remember there was a vote I I have to look up my notes. I don't want to give the wrong person credit, but it wasn't me. I know the person that came with Stack Overflow was somebody I emailed.
1: Well, Anil came up with the concept, the general concept of you want something that's a a meaningful name to programmers.
2: That's true. Let's give Anil Dash credit for that because we were naming it. And again, naming is super hard. Whether you're naming code, you're naming human beings. I don't care. Naming is just really difficult. to get right. naming
1: human beings. Yes. You're going to have to name a human being at some point.
2: Well, we have, but I'm I'm not allowed to really say the name. <laughs> okay. Uh, say it. Say it. I'll trouble. delete it later.
1: Just say it. Just say it. I won't. I won't leave it in the podcast. I'll I'll will delete it. I won't.
2: Do you really want me to say it? <laughs> You're gonna delete. Will you really delete it from the podcast if I say it? Sure, Jeff. I'll definitely delete it. Definitely. Oh uh, no, I don't believe you. Okay, <laughs> I can't. T- I'll tell you later. I'll tell you some other time. But uh, anyway. On the topic of naming, Anil Dash gave us a critical piece of guidance. We were really struggling. Right. And his piece of guidance was pick a term that's like an insider bit of knowledge. Like a programmer would look at that and say, oh, I know what that is. But yeah. the average person really wouldn't. And it's kind of like a token of like, oh, this is a site for us because we understand what this word mm-hmm. means. Um, and with one back caveat. 0 on fire. Yeah, I know. You wanted LPD Zero on fire so badly. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, it's a little too weird. Uh, now, there is one caveat around the name, though, and I think yours runs into that, which if, if I showed it to my mom or somebody that had no idea what programming was or whatever the topic is for the site, they, w- they, wouldn't, they would look at it and have some reasonable understanding of what it is. I mean, it wouldn't be just like gibberish to them. It would ideally be interpretable as a standard English like term to the average layperson. And stack overflow kinda of works because if you even if you don't know what it means, you can go, okay, there's a stack of stuff and it's, and it's overflowing. overflowing. And and that works, right? You can look at that that's kinda of what we do. I mean, you have questions that have answers, so it's kinda of like a stack of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it works on, on several levels. So it, it was a really good name. And it was also hugely popular. Like I said, I mean in the contest it was the voting was like not even close. Stack overflow was by far the big winner.
1: Yeah, that always happens the with these names. You you come up with one, it's way when you have a good name, you know because it just Everybody, you know, it just wins all the votes. We, the same thing happened when we came up with the idea for Copilot, the name Copilot, so much better than all the other crazy ideas that we had. Cool. Yeah, so So uh, that's a great idea.
2: I'll post that as a uh, question on the blog or as a poll. I'll set up a poll. Well, I'll just solicit suggestions, and then I'll set up a poll. So hopefully somebody will come up with something cool. Now, the, the other thing for the IT-centric Stack Overflow is we want to have people involved that are – sort of really active in the IT blogging community, Um, which, honestly, I don't know that many people in that community. Um, So that's another thing we're going to need assistance on, is, like, who are the people that should moderate the site and lead it and sort of set the tone? I mean, kind of like what you and I do for Stack Overflow to some degree. I mean, we're actually in there participating to some degree Mm -hmm. um, and also moderating and and saying, okay, this is appropriate for our community and this isn't, because -hmm. I... It's a little bit of a minority opinion, but I believe you kind of need somebody there with the stick of like, okay, you got to set boundaries. <laughs> and I guess you alluded to this when you said, uh, you know, there could be questions like, I can't get my mom's printer to work. Well, is that really an IT question?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, but that's what we want this for, isn't it? No? Uh maybe but i uh, my point is that there's still you have boundaries else in mind
2: we are still we we're still, we're, we're still oh. defining what those boundaries are, but some people would say there should be no boundaries. you could just post anything i think
1: this should be basically this should the other the second site you 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 keep using the word i t but that sort of means different things to different people uh okay. to be more specific, I would just think of it as like um, everything everything about computers that isn't actually writing code, so that's, that's that may fair. be uh that may include pretty advanced system administration stuff, you know, weird Unix incantations, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, pretty deep, you know, trying to administer an Oracle database or an Exchange server, Um, you know, all the way down to, like, literally, like, why doesn't the USB mouse work with that device over there? Uh, Or maybe that's two sites. I don't know. I just sort of imagined it just being one. I mean, there's a limit to how many sites we (laughs) want to make here. Uh, Well, yeah. So, maybe uh, and, you've and got like computer, you know, home computer help, which is like the Windows and stuff like that. But I kind of feel like you need to have, there's the sort of a continuum of knowledge, and you need to have, you can't divide the world into we're the smart people and we're the dumb people because who's going to help the dumb people? I don't mean dumb. I mean novice. <laughs> you know, I mean the home novice. Unsophisticated. Users. Who's going to help the unsophisticated? Exactly. You, know, you want. You really want the sophisticated people to help the unsophisticated people, and so there has to be something in it for the sophisticated people too. So there is. There can't be like an upper bound or a lower bound of how difficult the questions can be. You know, I mean, the, the, the Stack Overflow has some questions that are just the simplest possible programming questions by people who don't understand what an assignment is going to be. Right. And we want those to be there. That that's fine. We 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 welcome those people, they're 100% genuine participants, you know, as is, say, Alan Kay. Uh, Or even people asking, you know, very subtle and detailed questions about programming topics. Right. So I don't really know where it it ends. And in a lot of organizations, you know, it's just a continuum from, you know, the person trying to fix their own computer, getting a new mouse to work, uh, up to the person whose job it is to fix everybody's mice when they stop working, and go, just goes from office to office doing that. And that's what we sometimes call like the help desk. And mm-hmm. usually the help desk people get promoted into more serious system administration roles. You know, that's their pr- that's their career path is to go work on the servers for a little bit, and you know, system administration, network administration, all the way up to you know the people that are running uh, the universe. You know, the people that run the internet in a knock.
2: Right. Well, listening to you describe that, maybe that sort of crystallizes a little bit the audience, which is it's people, either IT professionals um, or system administrators, but people who are paid to do this as their job, or they're like hardcore enthusiasts where effectively that's their job, but they don't get paid to do it. I I don't want to say that's their job and they get paid to do it as, you know, an upper bound or anything. Um, But I I do think we want to discriminate between, you know, a home user's like, I can't get my left mouse button to work. Right. <laughs> that's not really a terribly interesting question for the site that I have. Well, that's had not about. a that's
1: not a realistic question. Uh, but let's take a, a true realistic question. I just bought the blah 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 hard drive expando super pack, and I yeah. put it in my computer, and it's only recognizing the first three hundred and twenty gigabytes, and all the other gigabytes are missing. Right. You know who's going to answer that one? Is that you know a system administrator might encounter that, but you know so could Uncle Marvin. Right. Or yeah, Jenny. it's it, so well, you're going to have a fair. hard time saying, "Well, this is just too simple for." Yeah, you, you have to allow. You're going to have to allow that my left mouse button doesn't work if it's going to be uh, anything. Because uh, uh, the only way not to it would be to segregate based on skill, mm-hmm. which is not going to work. Yeah, I, I have I have some concerns about this because
2: I feel like the audience is going to be much larger for this site than Stack Overflow because there's just more people doing broad system administration and IT than. Programming. We
1: already have pretty oh. much the biggest possible. I was just looking at the Google Analytics numbers for Stack Overflow the other day. Have mm-hmm. you looked at those lately? Uh, I really try to...
2: I, I, I only look because the advertisers. I don't really like looking oh, at this stuff. Oh, they want know what the
1: numbers are. Uh, like in the last month on Stack Overflow, we had uh, the number of unique visitors. It was... Jeez, is that right? Three million? Visitors. Click. Three million visitors. Visits, so that's like like unique individuals, and and I'm pretty sure the last statistic I heard was that there are two million working programmers in the United States and two million in the rest of the world put together. Really, yes. so there's for the world population of programmers is like roughly four million. I I think wow. I heard that somewhere, uh, and I've been sort of using that as a kind of a rule of thumb, and I think that that's a very generous use of the word programmer, right? Like that includes the people in. Uh, Companies that mostly do configuration kind of tasks. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not really sure. Uh, I can't remember where I got this statistic that I've been quoting it for a long time and just using it kind of as a rule of thumb metric for like what the possible audience is. So if we really had 3 million visits, and let's assume that because they're programmers, 1 million of those are repeat, repeats of people that just had cookies turned off in some stinky way. That's <laughs> still, right. we're, we're still getting to the point where it's, you know. M- it, it's not going to be long before mo- the average programmer knows about Stack Overflow and has been there.
2: Right. Well, it is interesting that you know I've I'm, we're so close to him. Particularly, I'm so close to like every day I'm on Stack Overflow for quite a while looking at the code. I'm just constantly thinking about it. So you lose perspective. But uh, I realize that there's a lot of people that are like discovering it for the first time have no idea who I am, mm-hmm. no idea who you are. <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> and they just come across the site like, wow, this is really cool and I get these really nice emails. And what somebody on Twitter I, I remark something about Stack Overflow and somebody on Twitter says, Oh, you wrote Stack Overflow. That's awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, Where have you been for the last, you know, nine months? <laughs> but Here's this the is the norm. Though, yeah. This is how yeah. distribution works. That's the broad audience. The people that are really hardcore and into every little, you know, new thing and have followed this are really, you know, a very small percentage of the audience overall.
1: I got some more. It's all kind of interesting stats here. We should, we should, uh, let, me just, let me just announce some of these cool stats um, from Google Analytics. Uh, the browsers that people use 52% Firefox, 32% Internet Explorer, 7% Google Chrome. Wow. That is a I love remarkably Chrome. fast adoption. I love Chrome. Oh, I love Chrome. Keep going. Uh, connection speed only 3% are dial up. Everybody else is something faster. Um, what else do you want to know? There, you can get this sort of ge- ge- geography kind of kind of thing. It shows Talk you, about you know, the, the geography because that, that comes up occasionally. Yeah, number one, United States. Number two, India. Number three, United Kingdom. Uh, number four. Canada. India's number two now? Wow, yeah, they didn't used to be number two. Yep. I thought, yeah, wow. Well, what about Canada? You forgot Canada. Where's, where's Canada in there? Number four.
2: Four, okay.
1: And uh, the first uh, non-English speaking country, number five, is Germany. And then uh, Netherlands. Excellent. Uh, We have no visitors in, what is this, the Central African Republic of something or other? (laughs) Senegal. Well, we did get one visitor in, what the heck country is this? Chad. There we go. We have one visitor from Chad. (laughs) But he only, he just went to one page and then left. Right. Remarkable. Um, should we do some uh, listener questions? Yeah. Do we have... How many do we have? Recorded? Oh, I don't know. I got all kinds, but some of them are kind of old. But I got, you know, eh, eh, eh. Well, Folks, pick you got to call in with your questions. Right. Yeah. Do, you, do you have one that you like, though? Yeah. Let's... Uh, here's one from Alfred. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Joel. This is Alfred BR, and I have a question about open source and
0: the sluggish economy. I was wondering what you think
1: might happen to the whole open source movement. Will it grow? Will projects get more developers since there may be more people out of work and
2: looking for something to do? Or will it shrink because
0: open source might have been an artifact of a good economy and it disappears in bad economies? Anyway, just wondering what you're thinking and thanks for the podcast.
2: Bye.
1: Yeah. Jeff? Jeff?
2: Um, I, my initial gut feeling is that I don't think open source stuff would be affected by the economy swings really at all, um, unless there's like a, a Mad Max style wor- apocalypse, <laughs> in which case <laughs> we I don't, don't think we'll be computers. using computers so right. much anymore. <laughs> 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 uh, so barring that, uh, the worldwide apocalypse scenario, um, I still feel like – are you still there, Joel? Yes. I had that dramatic sound, so I don't know if that was you.
1: Yeah, I was just trying to. Oh, you stupid. That don't even get me started about Audacity. Okay. Sorry. Normally it's good, but I, I got this old version of Audacity that refuses to open two copies at the same time. I see.
2: I thought maybe the worldwide apocalypse had
1: started with that one sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think, you know, I should mention, you know, a, a deep recession would be, um, you know, 5% reduction in economic activity, 10%. You know, maybe 20%. So this is not. Uh, this is still kind of. It's not. A, I don't want to say a rounding error, but it's not going to substantially change the world in in software that much. And you know what? I haven't yet really seen. I hate to say this, but I haven't yet really seen this so-called recession hit tech that much. Uh, there were. Uh, I you know I haven't heard stories of big layoffs. Uh, at software companies, we talked about this. We've talked about this in the past. I haven't heard stories of big layoffs at software companies or high tech companies, except for the usual kind of like five to ten percent cleaning house that a recession is is you know, sort of a good excuse to get rid of the people that you did, never had the heart to get rid of uh,
2: right. in,
1: in in previous times. And and while I'm not saying that there aren't people out there hurting, uh, psh, you know, this is just not going to be a tech recession. I I'm I, I, I'm not I'm not noticing it. You know, we had a couple of bad months uh, here at Fog Creek. And, uh, and when I say bad, I mean like 10 or 20, you know, they were like, they were, they were, they were like, our, they were, they were not any worse than we had had before. So we were sort of like at the, every, every month we have certain revenues and there's kind of a natural range. Those revenues move at. And we had a couple of months that were very much at the bottom of the range. Um, but then January just came, everything came back full force. So I don't know why. Awesome. Uh, Good.
2: So you still have a job then? Because I was thinking if, the, if things don't go well at uh, you know Fog Creek, they would let you go. You know, just to cut. They would some of the well, bottom I, cuts only, with of the dead wood out of the organization.
1: Only one here that doesn't know how to use the the version control system. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Every time I want to
1: check something in, I go
2: waste some programmers' time for
1: half yeah. an hour. Uh, so,
2: so our answer to Alfred's question is one: we don't. This is this, this, this tech is somewhat immune to what's happening right so now. So far, so a, far, it's, it's a it's not that bad. Immune, yeah. B is tech is somewhat immune. Um, and then C, I would add, is like I think open source tends to kind of be more of a labor of love statistically. So honestly, short of the road warrior future, I don't really see it being affected by anything. I think it'll kind of plod along. Yeah. Uh, I'm still really unclear about some of the business models, so I don't want to speak too much to that as far as you know, how the business models are going to evolve. There but are, you know, I, I, should,
1: I should mention, there, there uh, in, in web, when one, Web 1.0 crashed... Um, there, there are a few projects that came out of people then being unemployed and just building something, and there are a few, you know, kind of major products that came out of that. I think, uh, I think uh, BitTorrent is in that category. I'm not sure. I'm just sort of digging in my memory, but, but certainly a bunch of the big hot Web 2.0 apps were started by people who were either laid off or just basically underutilized after the first crash. Right.
2: That's a fair point. So it would really only have upside. <clears throat> We wouldn't necessarily
1: projects. expect to see a
2: downside. We expect right. to see upside. So right. if there was a big, you know, job loss, then potentially there would be more open source activity, but pr- probably not less.
1: Yeah, and and think. there may be companies looking to economize who try to use open source in ways that they never bothered before, and that may they, right. that may stimulate some open source development. Right. Eh, it's one of those half dozen of one, six dozen and a half of the other. Uh, Let's take another question from Sean. Hi,
2: Jeff and Joel. This is Sean from Philadelphia. It's uh, user ID 26. 26. 22,630 <laughs> user IDs. lower than John Skeet. My question is for Joel, <laughs> and it's
1: business and software related. So say you've been writing code all morning, you're hungry, you go to a pizza shop, you've never been there before,
2: and they don't sell slices, only like individual small like personal pies. Why did they do this? Um, that's my question. And yeah, also, Joel, question. I'll be at Future of Web Apps Miami, and I can't wait
1: to uh, hear you. All right. Hear awesome it. question, Sean, and I'll buy you a pizza at the Web Apps of Future in Miami. Now.
2: Wait. So you know who Sean is, right? This is a kind of a notorious Stack Overflow user. You know that, right? You don't. You better film it. Well, you it. don't because you're not in it day-to-day like I am. So sh- Sean... Uh <laughs> Sean... Sean... Uh, I I like Sean. Let me just say that I like all of our Stack Overflow users, um, and I think that they're the reason Stack Overflow is what it is. Even the ones that I don't always agree with, like I feel like they have ideas of what Stack Overflow should be or how it should work that are sort of kind of majorly different from mine, Um, they're still the the backbone of what it is, right? I mean, I I tolerate dissent because I don't have this view that I'm – the only correct person on the system, right? It's, it's, it is a community in a very real sense. Like, I have implemented things that I totally disagree with. Wait, pizza. The um, question's about pizza. Well, I just want to mention who Sean is. I apologize. Oh, so Sean, historically, from, from earliest times, he was the guy that came up with that exploit around the cookies on our site that uh, I wrote yeah, about. yeah, that was sort of fun. That was Sean. <laughs> so he edited his profile and put in a bit of JavaScript that actually sent cookies back to his server. <laughs> Uh, which is borderline not cool, right? <laughs> but at least I found out about it before we went public. Uh, and he's continued to sort of evolve and, and try different things on the site. And uh, he's very uh, experim- does a lot of experiments, shall we
1: say. Yeah. So that's who Sean is anyway. Go ahead. Well, Sean, if you like doing experiments, here's what I would experiment with. Go to the pizza place in your neighborhood and try ordering a slice of pizza. And when they don't give it to you,
2: Is this some sort of allegory out. about the Business of Software conference? <laughs> I'm running out of ideas. <laughs> I mean, is he, is he making some comment about business software? I want you to definitely meet it's not, Sean. No, it's, the, a different, it's Future of Web Apps. It's a different conference altogether. It's not even oh, my sorry. conference. Oh, sorry. I apologize. Future of Web Apps. Uh, I want you to meet Sean there for sure. Why can't you uh, so buy Sean, a slice of pizza? We know Sean's
1: going to listen because we played his question. Sean, so Sean, I know that pizza parlor in Philadelphia, and I've gone there many times, and they give me slices. Uh, you know, 25. Sean is from Philadelphia, so it's, yeah. it's probably a homegrown question. Yeah, uh, it's it's if they're not giving it to you, they must not so- like something about the look of your face or the, or just your whole attitude or your just general demeanor. <laughs> well, That was a good question.
2: Good to hear Sean's voice finally put a voice to the the annoying things that happen on the system with that username behind them. Um, I actually have a question. Now I know it's unorthodox to ask questions that come in through email but I'm going to cheat by saying I've asked you this question before which I kind of have Uh, it has to do with roles at a software development company so yeah I made roles in the bakery (laughs) a lot of places you have well defined roles like you know PM dev and test and they're rigid you know PMs don't code Um, and he contrasts that with sort of the stack overflow model which is that we're so small we have to do everything like I'm doing all the server work you know, I answer all the tech support email. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> pretty yeah. much anything that goes on, I have to do. And and
1: Joel, uh, excuse me, Jared. Yeah, that's has just to, the nature of any startup.
2: Right, that's the nature of any startup. Any but startup I think he's asking about if this is to have these rigid barriers in the organization as you get larger to have these really well defined roles, uh, where you know, as a programmer, all you do is program. You know, you're not designing the product at all.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, is is that something that makes sense? Is that something that you're behind? I mean.
1: What what are your opinions on this? Yeah, well, it does. I believe because first of all, uh, you know, not everybody has the skills to do all those different roles, and so it's true. Well, I you know, I'm still the graphic designer for Fogreek Software, and it shows. Oh boy, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like it's like I yeah, I'll do all that stuff, but it doesn't mean I can do it well. And so you know, if people sort of stick to their knitting with the one thing that they that they're really experts at, first of all, they you know they enjoy the things that they're expert experts at more and secondly they're more likely to to have the skills so for years i did the system administration here but boy as soon as i could hire a professional to do it you know things just got much much better and and you know obviously a lot of things that i did in the most expedient possible way because i just didn't have time to learn and practice and experience uh all of a sudden got done got done better you know that said there's a lot of a lot of pleasure in in doing everything and being sort of a one-man show um so you think it's a, it's a
2: control the control part of the access where you feel like okay you control every part of the end product. And that makes the fact that you're not like the just best fun. It's it's
1: It's sort of more interesting. It's like, you know, hey, I'm the wait, I'm the cook and I'm the waiter and I'll bring out the food to you and take your order and I'll sweep up at the end of the uh, of the night. And there's something sort of holistic about that. I don't know what holistic means, but
2: Well, no, you're right. There's like a the sort of way. intimacy there, right? It's like, okay, I'm creating an experience for you. Where yep. i'm going to do everything do so if anything happens that that I don't like or that you don't like, we that have total control, me. yeah, you know yeah I, I can hand tailor this experience for you, yeah end to end because when you hand off features to other people or you hand off like slices of you know the task to other people you're sort of you, you lose a little bit of control you know over the output, um, so I can see there's an attraction there, sort of hand crafting everything mm-hmm. you know like you're a craftsman and you build. You know, it's made with love, and every part was created by you. Even if it wasn't as professional as it could have been.
1: Yeah, and you're you know, working in the craft- front of the store, and there's a little sign outside that's not very nice, but you made it, and the store isn't as clean as it could be. <laughs> you know, there's right. just all kinds of. Um, no, there's it,
2: a charm to that, I think, yes, and a charm. and it gets to the craftsmanship of actually building software, which is nice. And once you sort of specialize, you know, the whole specialization is for insects argument where. You have this army of people that come in, and everything's very rigid, and it's like an assembly line. It's like McDonald's, right? Right. At, at, at one extreme, where all the food is the same, but it's repeatedly the same. That's like the, the end point of some of that, right?
1: Yeah, and that but may remove you know, a certain amount of variety from people's lives, but I don't really think it, it does. I think that there's still, even within those specializations, you're doing a lot of different things all the time. So. You
2: also brought up a good point of, like, say, being a designer. Let's use designer as an example. And Have you heard this term, diviner, designer, like developer designer, diviner?
1: <laughs> no, and I'm going to try to forget it as hard as I
2: can. <laughs> Enjoy that. Uh, so you're right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm okay at copying designs, but I'm a really crap designer at my core. But I think it's important to know how to do something. Just well enough to understand that you suck at it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, because otherwise you can't really judge the people that you hire to do it until if they. That's doing right. It. That's exactly what I'm saying. Like if you don't know design at all, somebody could show you that it's just horrible. Like you know, red on black flashing. Yeah. You'd be like, oh, that's great. Yep. Because <laughs> you have no competency at all in the discipline, so you want to have some level of competency, not like you know level ten or whatever but like level, say, three
1: at least as a minimum. So, I mean, sometimes all this- you're just sitting there. Design is one of the things that all of us really have to know a little bit about graphic design. Um, there's a book that I recommend to people um, by Robin Williams called The Non-Designer's Design Book. Um, oh, it's a classic. Yeah, and she's written a bunch of other books on other uh, slightly related topics, and I think that was her first one. Um, but it's, it's very short. It's very easy to understand, and it will get you the basic concept of how to build a page or a screen or a website uh, it was designed, it was intended for print uh, in a way that is at least not awful. You know, like, just so you understand things about contrast and serif versus sans serif and rules and spatial and white space and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it'll get you the concept so that when you have to do it, you'll do a 80% better job. Not a nice job, mind you, because <laughs> that's going to take right. years and years of practice. But sometimes you just have no choice but to design something uh, on the fly. I, I, I mean, sometimes you just end up doing something... Um, And and you better do it right. You're you're writing, I mean, CSS, at the least, like just designing CSS, choosing fonts, choosing colors. You wind up doing that all the time, even if you have a professional designer, because, you know, they're not necessarily involved in every single page and every single screenshot and every single dialogue box.
2: Right. And I think certainly as a small company, I mean, this is required. This is not optional. This is... (laughs) Right. it's only as you get larger
1: that you have luxury of these specializations and it's good and to I learn think... about some of that stuff like it's good to learn about uh you know whatever it may be when i just think about the the things that i've learned about over the years um in, in trying to create a company here everything from like accounting to architecture to graphic design to uh system administration to marketing to advertising
2: to uh, let's not forget to interior design
1: yeah no, i was calling that architecture <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kidding um yeah, yeah, no, but seriously, like stuff like, um, uh, you know, like how ventilation systems work in offices. <laughs> right,
2: <laughs> right. No, I, I agree. It's fun. I think you're either kind of a generalist or a specialist by personality. Mm-hmm. And, like I said, you and I, we've talked about this before. A little bit cheating, a little bit because we're obviously generalists. So we're gonna always skew to that axis of the, right. the graph. Um, and it could very well be different for different people. But I do think there's a core truth that. You tend to be really good at certain things just naturally, mm-hmm. and those will come easy to you. It's the stuff that doesn't come easy to you that you have to struggle to learn a little bit, and I think that turns people off from it. Like they're like, "I don't really understand design, so I'm just not not even going to try." Mm-hmm. You know, but I'm really good at programming. Like I can write an algorithm, you know, like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this ultimately hurts them in their career because they specialize too much. Like they just entrench in things that they're naturally good at without. Pushing themselves in areas that they're not. Right. Um, so I, I would caution you. I see that a lot in software developers, and I know I talk about it all the time on my blog. Um, but I think it's really important, and I think that's maybe one of the things to get out of Daniel's email is that you really do want to cross train a little in some of these other disciplines. That they will actually make you a better developer. Surprisingly,
1: there is. Uh, um, you know, one thing that happens a lot of times is uh, programmers get uh, bored with just the straight programming. And so they start to kind of over, overcomplicate the jobs, their jobs a little bit. And um, if they have non-technical management, they can usually get away with it. So what they do is they say, you know, I keep making the same CRUD reports all day long. i got to make a framework. We need a framework. I've looked at all those available frameworks. They're all crap. I need to make my own framework. <laughs> and then they, what they've done is they've created some kind of a system. <laughs> Let's say for something that doesn't need a system whatsoever. You know, like uh, a- wait, 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 hold
2: on. The system I have created. The system. The How many system. times have you heard that and just like a chill runs down your spine? It's like you've right. created the system. Oh, no. Excellent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the world needs another system,
1: please. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a lot of times, what it is is a bad, leaky abstraction on top of something that didn't need an abstraction. Wasn't that hard anyway? It's just a way of making it confusing and convoluted. Right.
2: So rather than doing creating the system, maybe like branch out, learn how to be a better tester. Yeah. <laughs> learn well, learn some basic project management stuff, learn I mean, some
1: designs. That's that's just sort of a sign maybe that a programmer is getting a little bit bored with what they're doing. They're just not being intellectually challenged yet. And uh, uh you know, maybe they need to just try some, some different specialty for a while, whatever that that may be. It doesn't have to be programming, it could be uh QA, customer service, marketing, sales, you know, try something else. Uh, in your company, is. even even in a company that has very very rigid boundaries, um, you know, if if somebody's creative and smart, there's no reason you can't switch careers every five years or
2: ten years. That's a really excellent observation. So if you observe systemitis in your programmers, <laughs> then you need you need to take some steps to deal with that because that's a symptom. And I, I would agree with that. And I think a lot of places like they see systemitis and they see those. Oh wow, you're a really good programmer. You've right. created the system. Yeah, They don't see it as like, whoa, this is bad. This guy's bored. He needs some, some other stuff to occupy him. They see yeah. it as like valid output
1: of unit of work for the program. <laughs> I, I used to – I mean the first time I never had – You know, my first job in, in programming was at Microsoft, and I never had any experience with the internal software development that goes on at non-programming companies uh, until I worked for Microsoft Consulting Services. And the first place they sent me was Bankers Trust, uh, a, a big investment uh, – or Wall Street uh, Bank that was uh, – bought by Deutsche Bank. And uh, anyway, when I got to Bankers Trust, I sort of looked around and there were a couple of projects going on there. And you know, I was a consultant to Bankers Trust. Mm-hmm. I wasn't working there. And there were a couple of projects going on that I couldn't believe. One was an attempt to make a universal log-on system, uh, that, which struck me as not a, banking, a core banking competency. And I mm-hmm. was suspicious as to why they were doing it. And they were actually sitting there trying to figure out how to write a you know a different logon for all these systems. Like, that's not usually... When somebody writes an operating system, like they create Unix or NT or something, the first thing they don't think of is, I'm going to make it so that anybody can plug in <laughs> a login oh, system. So <laughs> this wasn't easy. <laughs> uh, oh, What yeah. they were doing. And uh, there, then somebody wanted to have a... I think it was a universal file copy mechanism. Like, we should be able to copy any file from any system to anywhere else. Which, you know, in the... Early 90s was not so easy. And uh, um, both of these things struck me as what we would call systems programming and the kind of thing that it's probably better just to wait for a vendor to provide it, even if you you can't have it for a while, just wait a couple of years because it's crazy for you to be trying to do this kind of systems work. It's not adding value. As a bank, and every time I, I I got to these groups and saw these people doing these things, I saw what was going on, which is that they had some very very smart programmers that they had hired, who had basically gotten bored with the core business, and had come up with these things that they could sell to management, and management partially didn't understand because they weren't technical themselves, and partially didn't care, and partially they were just sort of persuaded by the. By the talk of these sort of, you know, almost architecture astronauts who are like, we got to build our own single logon for the whole bank. I get, you know, that makes sense, sure.
2: Why not? Right. No, I think that's an excellent observation. If you came in as a consultant, I mean, just being able to recognize systemitis yeah. <laughs> is somewhat rare. So it, you, you probably paid for your consulting fee if you were able to tell them look no, you know, you've No no I couldn't s-
1: do that. No, I had no no way in, in <laughs> Oh that's right. You were part of,
2: of you were paid to, to be part of the problem at that point. <laughs> exactly. I see how it works. That's I, excellent. I,
1: what I was working on is this a different system group that was adding basically version control to spreadsheets. And so I spec'd that all version control system that's just a UI inside Excel. That was what my project was there. And again it was, you know, version control and spreadsheets isn't really a bank's business but uh, uh, you know there was a kind of a strong business there, was, there were business cases to be made for these things there's no question right. but sometimes they really were just because a programmer was bored and was just kind of stretching for something challenging uh, oh yeah and the real way if you're, if you're a programmer and you're bored and you're stretching for something challenging go work for a systems company or go work for a product company that's going to make something new and unique and interesting and um, stop uh, you know, configuring SQL server for derivative trades okay should we get to a couple of your, uh, yeah questions question Right. Well, my question was uh, was um, uh, I didn't even realize this was Alan Kay's. Uh, so his question is, um, um, what are what are some of the significant new? In- I'm just sort of paraphrasing here. What are the significant new inventions in computing since 1980? Um, yep. This must be that Alan Kay because for- if he thinks 1980 was 50 years ago.
2: Well, that's awesome that you were able to identify this, not knowing that it's Alan Kay, but the number is
1: 432-922. 432-922. And I'll just list uh, the number one answer was uh, the World Wide Web. Number two is the Free Software Foundation, Uh, desktop publishing, color, package management. Okay. Wait, how come there's somebody here quoting me? Oh, I see. That's from the transcript. Um, just in time compilation i don't i don't first of all i don't really like this list if i had to say what is it, the significant new inventions in computing well, maybe it's not an invention um you know, I, you know I, w- I would say probably the most significant thing in programming specifically is is garbage collection which is clearly was invented uh, before 1980 but really right. didn't start appearing until until java it did not get mainstreamed. Until, well, that's uh, Java. That's one, of, that's one of the lessons of this question is, is
2: how much of this stuff we we think of as new now isn't really new at all. Right, it's just becoming somewhat mainstream. This is how it takes long it takes. Ever, yeah, it really a lot of it times takes it really forever. Does. And we're in an industry where you know things happen like so fast. We're like, what oh, we that's think. a year old. It's ancient, and yet one there are think. these truly ancient concepts from twenty plus years ago. Yeah. So you forget,
1: you, you literally forget how long it takes and how old some of this stuff is. And, so and I there's think still that... people, I mean, there's still people like, in, in, like Ruby and Python still don't have type inference, do they? So like this is a technology um, from the 90s, which would make those languages much, much faster. Right. So anyway, uh, yeah. They're about twenty years behind uh, academia, usually. It, it, it can be. Well, anyway, what I thought I would do to, for my answer to this question is tell you what computing was like in 1980, right? Because this was the theme about how I'm—I'm extremely—you're old. old. Yes, <laughs> you're not that old. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, and crotchety. So 1980. <laughs> uh, the um, let's see. I was in tenth grade. Well, okay, 1979. <laughs> 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 uh, okay, you could buy home computers, but the home computers that you could buy were like the Radio Shack TRS-80. I don't think the Apple II had come out yet. Uh, or maybe just just maybe 1980. Maybe that's when it just well came there out. was
2: the, remember there was the Apple one which not many people had yeah yeah that was just Apple II was really the big one yeah the, the Apple one was a kit you bought for you know there were right. 600 of them were made and um, this came out of the club scene in Silicon Valley but this is sort so of were, this is sort
1: of you know, this, this might have come out and I really wish I knew when the Apple II came out let's let's look this up I'll use the box of knowledge uh, the Apple II 1977 okay so the Apple II had sort of come out um, it didn't really you know, It wasn't starting to show up in people's homes uh, that that much. Um, the, uh, there was the TRS-80. These computers had 16K kilobytes of memory. And you turned it on, and there were, you were looking at a basic interpreter, and you could type a basic program and run it, and that was just about it. And uh, eventually, um, uh, when did uh, VisiCalc come out? That's a good question. Because VisiCalc was probably the first program that actually got people buying desktop computers.
2: Oh, it was definitely a killer app. There's not that many killer apps. That's one thing you learn is that they're, the killer app is relatively rare, but right. they're huge events when they happen. So,
1: Visicalc, uh, it looks like 1979, according to Wikipedia here. Um, so, that's not, uh, um, that it that wasn't really mainstream. It wasn't yet starting to show up. Mostly, though, uh, like home computers were these funny things that you programmed the very simplest basic games on. You would go to the bookstore, and you would get a copy of Creative Computing Magazine, and uh, it would give you these games written by David All, and you would type them in, and then, then the games would be like, you are on a rocket ship landing on the moon. How many pounds of thrust do you wish to use? And then you would crash <laughs> I love I loved moon. those games. <laughs> that was the... That was the That was the thrill of that thing. And then the TRS-80 came with a big, fat, spiral-bound book with all kinds of games you could type in. And a typical game would be like displaying a Robert Frost poem on the screen. (laughs) It's like a typical program. You you would spend a lot of time typing in print, quote, okay, now eight spaces, or is that nine spaces? To make it (laughs) formatted nicely. Uh, And... uh, and so, um, so, uh, but my access to computers was um, that the schools were starting to get them and, and try to figure out how to use them in educational purposes. And in Albuquerque, there was a single, uh, the whole Albuquerque public school system had a mini-computer, which was a digital model 10, system 10. I'm not really sure. It was a mini-computer. It was basically, it looked like a mainframe because it filled up a whole room. It was not a real mini-computer. I mean, it was smaller than a mainframe, but... You know, there was a big dedicated room with the air conditioning and stuff, with about eight gigantic racks uh, of equipment, and uh, one of those big, super large hard drives that looks like a washing machine, and um, that was the uh, system ten. And it had a operating system, and the way you accessed, is, access, accessed it was on these dot matrix terminals um, that were uh, teletypes. So you had a keyboard. And a little print head, and it printed everything you typed uh, on dot matrix on fanfold paper. And you typed commands and hit enter, and then they would execute the commands and print back the results to you. Um, I think the operating system was called SOS, or maybe that was the editor that we used was SOS. Mm-hmm. The operating system was RST something, Rasta something. Oh boy, somebody's going to have to write in. Um, And, you know, these things could support about 20, 30 kids all sitting at different terminals typing in their basic programs, which is all you could really do with them is type in those same basic programs.
2: There's a whole generation of programmers that grew up – I was certainly one of them – with these books where you literally learned to program because you wanted to – Basically, you want to have something to do with the computer. You didn't, the computer's like, here's a computer. Do something, right? Right. right. <laughs> and that something is like, well, let's have fun. You what know, can let's, I do? Really? Exactly. Yeah. Like, let's try something fun that's going to entertain me, like a game. And you you would type in your own games, you know? Right. And yeah, and this was often. fun. But but then you would like modify the game, and then you start. Well, what if I wrote my own game that was similar? And yeah, put my I, name. I kind of wonder. It. I think for today's programmers growing up, honestly, it's the web. It's I think it's pretty much like. I want to create JavaScript. I want to build some, you know, Flash game or some JavaScript Maybe. game in my browser. No, a
1: lot of a lot of this creative energy is going in in other ways. Um, I, I don't really know what what the kids these days are doing. I, well, I think, about, think, no, think about think about the the early computer
2: experience. What's the first thing you see when you boot up? A flashing command prompt.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What is it inviting you to do? Well, I'm going to type in commands. It says ready. So. Yeah, it says ready. And like the basic is in the BIOS, right? I mean, it's right. basic is right there. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, I mean, to program,
1: it's, you know, it's not right in front of but you. But also, like don't that. forget that in those days, you could show, sit somebody down at one of those computers and say, okay, type print and then put quotation marks and then put your name and then put quotation marks and hit enter. And you do that and you hit enter and it would say your name and you'd be like, oh, it said my name. <laughs> and that was exciting and impressive. You're like, right. my, today my name came today, up today, on the screen. I yes, didn't have to do anything. Today, Today, it's like, okay, type your name into
2: Facebook and upload a picture, and then you're on Facebook. You're on the World Wide Web. Right. <laughs> you right. have a web page. Now. And that's
1: not even, that's that's barely even impressive to anybody anymore. So I think well, you can't, like, the yeah. barrier to have an exciting experience with a computer is so much higher because we're used to yeah. such ridiculously rich computing experiences on our toaster ovens. Right. That, you know, anything you can do as a programmer is going to be, it's going to be. I, I'm wondering if kids aren't just, like, disappointed because they can't do anything exciting with computers. You know they can't like the the level of work it would take them to learn how to program something that would impress anybody, is now so high. Well, I don't know about
2: that, and I, I got to tell you that's Alan Kay did so much with like Small dog. teaching kids how to use computers, right? Sure. That was like his major major goal in life, and I think he's still working on that actually. Um, so I think there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. And wh- the reason I think it's particularly interesting to us is like I want new programmers, every new programmer that's born. I want them to hopefully learn from the mistakes that we've made in some way. So I think it's critical that we sort of reach out to these programmers and at least let them know the information is out there about you know the kind of mistakes you're going to make and the things you're going to do wrong and because that's one of my great fears is like I don't think software I don't think programming is really an engineering discipline yet. I think it's very much still an amateur activity although it's improving. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think part of the way we we Grow as a craft is is to reach out to these younger generations and actually have this connection with them and you know kind of have a conduit from them to get this accrued knowledge that we have that you don't really get by like say getting a computer science degree necessarily. So, however they're learning how to program, whether it's booting up a Commodore sixty four and seeing the flashing Basic prompt or you know going into a website and starting to type in some JavaScript, um, I, I think it's important that we find each other somehow
1: and open that dialogue wow that was awesome we have to end on that that was just a, a, a terrific uh, note to end and uh we're kind of getting towards the end of our time okay do you want to run the the end of the show blah 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 because i always do the end of the show blah 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 that's true you always do the end of the show blah blah, blah so i'll do
2: it so uh Let me get the podcast notes uh, here in front of me. So uh, we have a phone number. If you would like to submit a question for us to answer on the air, we like that in audio format. And the phone number to do that is 646-826-3879. Just make it about 90 seconds and make sure you leave your name. Uh, We also have a wiki, which will be in the shown notes for people who are audio impaired or otherwise can't listen to the podcast, we really appreciate it if you could help us uh, edit that and get those transcripts together. And uh, you can also email us at podcast at stackoverflow.com if you have any other questions or would like to submit an audio file. You can do that there as
1: well. Did I forget anything? No. You do it much better than I do. That was uh, That was awesome. I'll see you next week. See you next week.
0: You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of The Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.